Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Monday, September the 11th, 2023. Many are called, but few are chosen, certainly when it comes to books. Most books turn out to be failures, big time failures. I think the numbers are most books only sell about 50 copies, and those are mostly to friends and family or perhaps bought by the author themselves. Uh, but some books uh, get rewarded. Some books seem to be successes. Uh, we've been featuring the FT uh, Business Books of the Year, been interviewing all sorts of authors. Uh, I'm interviewing Simon Johnson, the author of Power and Progress, later this morning. Ed Conway wrote a wonderful book on the material world. Siddharth Kara on Cobalt Red. Lots of wonderful books that have been rewarded as successes on the long list of the FT Books of the Year, um, including uh, one about uh, easy money and, of course, the environment. And one of the books selected uh, is called Right Kind of Wrong, Why Learning Can Fail to Teach Us uh, to Thrive. It's by my guest today, Amy Edmondson. Um, an interesting book. This, it's all about the science of failing well. Uh, Amy is joining us from that uh, institution of failure, the Harvard <laughs> Business School on the Boston side of uh, the Charles River. Amy, um, what is failure? I mean, you're on the long list. If you don't get on the short list, which I think is, is uh, announced uh, on the 20th of this month, will you have failed? That's a very good question. So um, my simple definition of failure is an undesired result. So I guess one, I could say that's an undesired result to not get on, on the shorter list, but I hadn't really set out to be on the list at all. I'm, I'm so delighted to be on it, but it was not on my list of goals that I had to achieve either with this book or in my life. So to me at the moment, it's just data. Just data. Maybe that will be the title of your next book. But um, that's actually it, a good title. Yeah, I'm sure it's been taken by somebody. Probably at your business school. Probably. If you do get on the short list, then the stakes get higher. Then, that's if you're exactly not made clear. the business book of the year, I'm guessing that the failure will be more painful and acute. In other words, the higher up the mountain you get, does not getting to the summit make make it even more painful and meaningful? I think emotionally that's true, even if logically it shouldn't be. Um, what, what, what would give me solace, what does give me solace, is that the other books on the list are fabulous. I don't know all of them, but the ones no, I know. Well, you would I, say that, Amy. You can't say they're true. all terrible. I mean, you know, honestly, an author wants to be in good company. Right? If, if you're on a list and you look to your right and you look to your left and you say that is a worthy book, then it's just an honor to be there. Well, I hope you're right. Um, and, and the odd thing is, thinking out loud, that if you don't get on the list for the tens of thousands of historians and tech writers and business writers who didn't get on that FT list when it was announced a few weeks ago, there's no failure there. It probably doesn't even occur no. to them. Exactly. Exactly. If that was their only goal, that was a pretty risky goal to put forward. And 
it's unlikely that it was their only goal. It's, it's nice, of course. It's a, it's a great recognition, but it is not, um, I don't think it constitutes a failure to any author uh, who's not on it. Amy, your book is certainly not the first, uh, and I'm guessing the last book to be written about failure. It always seems as if the people who write about failure and fetishize it are the most successful. You're at the Harvard Business School, the leading institution of its type probably in the world. What's intriguing about the title of your book um, is the subtitle, The Science of Failing Well. Is there a science? What do you mean by a science of failing well? I mean an evidence-based set of practices that are involved in pursuing the right kind of wrong, which is the intelligent failures, and also, to the extent possible, preventing the wrong kind of wrong. So the science of failing well is... And in my, I made this up, right? I made I made up the term, the science of failing well, but I think it encompasses both best practices for operating safely in especially high risk organizations, best practices for preventing preventable failures and best practices for conducting smart experiments that even if you do them as absolutely well as humanly possible may end in failure simply because you entered uncertainty as soon as you wanted to experiment. Tell, tell us a little bit about your, your interest in failure. Um, I'm talking to you from Silicon Valley. Uh, it always seems to me as if it's the, the most successful people, <laughs> whether it's a, a Reed Hoffman or an Eric Schmidt or a Tim O'Reilly, they're the ones who out here at least fetishize failure. Why is that? Why do successful people love the, the notion of failure? Because they love the notion of success. So let's back up. What they understand that maybe not everyone understands is that great success, meaning serious achievement in almost any domain you can think of, requires failures along the way. So unless you have a stomach for failure, you're unlikely to be truly successful, whether that's in sports, in the arts, in business, uh, in academia, it necessarily involves failures if you're venturing into new territory. As I said, you're a, a famous professor. You're at the, uh, the business school. You're author of prize-winning books. Your last book, The Fearless Organization, Creating Psychological Safety in the Workplace for Learning, Innovation, and Growth, was acclaimed. But I assume you failed. Can you give me some anecdotes of your own personal failure that, that work in terms of the argument in right kind of wrong? Well, how long is this program? Because this well, as long as you want, Amy. Yeah, hours if you want. Very, very long time. So I, I deliberately include some of my own failures um, in the book. Um, I think it, you know, it's obvious. I didn't include the ones that are truly, you know, painful to contemplate and go back. But, but what I deliberately did was make sure to have not just intelligent failures. I opened the book with an intelligent failure of mine that was a, an academic study that failed, um, or at least a hypothesis that failed. And um, But I also include what I call a basic failure, which is a, making a mistake you know better and should not make, and it um, creates a pretty significant failure. And um, there are some complex ones as well. So maybe I should, I, sh I don't know which, which I should go first with, but the um, maybe I'll just, I'll lead with the intelligent failure. And an intelligent failure happens when you're in new territory 
you can't just look up the answer on the internet. You have no choice but to try something you're not sure whether it will work. All of science is, is that way, including social science. And so my research project 30 years ago involved working with some clinicians at nearby hospitals. And they asked me to replicate something or look at something that had been done in aviation that showed that better teamwork led to fewer errors in simulators by cockpit crews. I said, okay, I will assess the teamwork. I will measure that with a validated survey. And you, the, the medical uh, experts, will track error rates by going sort of unit to unit every other day to get the information they could get about the errors that were happening there. And what happened was, instead of being able to show, as they had in aviation, that better teamwork led to fewer errors, it looked like better teamwork, according to my measure, was associated with higher error rates. Now, that was an explicit failure of my hypothesis. I mean, I was not just wrong. I was 100%, 180 degrees wrong. So as I started spiraling in my thinking about how I drop out of graduate school and never be an academic, of course, I had to sit and think about what might really be going on. But it was, it was, a, it was a true failure of a hypothesis that I thought was reasonable, had good reason to believe it could be true. Now, ultimately, I was able to show that it wasn't necessarily that the hypothesis was wrong, but that the error measure was flawed. That it turns out people, we already knew this, but we didn't think of it clearly at the time, people are not terribly happy to report their own errors or their teammates' errors. And so what I learned was in some teams, people were willing to speak up. Um, and in others, they weren't. Those teams where people were willing to speak up are also those teams that had higher scores on the team diagnostic survey. Short way of saying that is that they're more honest, more open, more willing to talk about the truth of what's really going on. And so they created a kind of biased measure, biased oddly in the favor of making the good teams look bad and the bad teams look good. That's another story that was what led me to the discovery of psychological safety. So ultimately, and you have to go quite a bit down the road, that failure led to my later success um, in my field. So that's a classic intelligent failure situation where a failure, a disappointment ends up opening a new door or pivoting you in the right direction towards something that might work. Now, are there sometimes, I'm guessing, Amy, where even the possibility of pivot doesn't work? It's one thing to fail as an academic yes. and thesis about aviation. It's quite yeah. another for a pilot to fail because exactly. he crashes his plane, that's it. Right. And that is not the right kind of wrong. If a pilot crashes his plane, it's devastating and tragic and essentially preventable right? in, in, in nearly all cases. And in fact, that's where the, the insight came from years ago in, in, in the black box investigations of cockpit crew recorders. They found that many, if not most, accidents happened because someone else in the cockpit, lower in status, was unwilling or felt unable to speak up to point out an error that 
his boss had made. Right? So again, psychological safety, it turns out, is, is very foundational to that ability to prevent preventable failures. So in aviation, the only kind of intelligent failures we tend to see are those that happen in a simulator, but those that happen where you're deliberately experimenting and learning and trying to figure out what happens if, but you're deliberately doing it in an environment where no one can get hurt. It's interesting you bring out one of the other long list um, books is uh, Mustafa Suleiman's book about AI. And he uses an example of the airline industry to suggest that big tech companies can work together like airlines to avoid risk. So I'm guessing that Great. Uh, the, 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 the heads right. of Google and OpenAI right. and Microsoft probably should not be wanting to right. fail well when it comes to AI because that will well, be a, an existential outcome for, yes. for all of humanity. Uh, fail well in the laboratory, right? Fail well in firewall safe environments where you can experiment and see what happens. Failing well does not mean something at scale that was preventable. It's interesting. Yeah, I, I was thinking of failing in terms of AI. It's all over the news. I'm sure you're, you're following it, the story of AI. Um, OpenAI pursued an idea that was actually developed in a Google white paper, which they never followed up on. So Sam Altman took a bet on generative AI and he was right. Is that a, an example of potentially failing well? I mean, how does that look in terms of your theory yes. from the perspective of both Google, who failed, and OpenAI, yeah. who didn't fail? Well, that's a great, it's, it's, that's a, it's a great target to, to analyze and to unpack. And I think I have to go back a step because just a little while ago, you said risk, that we don't want people taking risks. I don't think we can avoid taking. Well, no, risk. I did. I just said with airlines. I'm not saying right, airlines. right, right. No, but I mean, even with air, like risk is everywhere. What we want is smart risks, managed risks, and incredibly high quality conversations about what we know and what we don't know before we do anything that has the potential for human harm or you know harm to the systems upon which we de we depend. So I would say the, the, the Google side of that question does at least um, signify a potential preventable failure um, of the type two kind, right? If, uh, the failure to pursue it now in retrospect looks like a bad move. They may have had, they probably did have very good reasoning at the time. Uh, so we, we want to be a little wary of the of the, you know, um, at retrospective sense-making um, around this. Whereas Sam was explicitly doing something that people told him was premature. You know, it's just not ready yet. You're probably wasting your time. But he chose to waste his time, you know, quote unquote, waste his time. He, he believed that the risk was worth taking. But so in other words, for him, it was a manageable risk. And that makes it the right kind of wrong if it didn't work and the right kind of right in that it did. And you you, you talk about him as Sam, Sam Altman, of course. Is he a, a model of, of someone? I mean, what did he have to lose? At worst, it right. didn't come yeah, Exactly. I mean, reputation, but not really. I think he's, I, I just heard a, a, him on a podcast with uh, Nikolai Tanjan and I would 
I just loved it. And, it, you know, he's he's very straightforward and, you know, logical, technical, thoughtful, deliberate in, in the way he thinks, or at least the way he presents himself, thinking aloud with Nikolai. And so I came away with the impression that, um, because he, he even explicitly referred to the fact that people said, no, it's way premature, you're wasting your time, that he that was a risk he was willing to take, right? It wasn't as if he thought, oh, I'm 100% right and everybody else is wrong. He thought, no, I think this is a worthy investment, right? It's, it's so the right kind of wrong is in new territory, check, um, with a hypothesis, check, um, where it's um, in pursuit of a goal, check, and the failure, if it is to happen, is as small as possible. In other words, it's manageable. You are not betting resources you don't have. You're not betting reputational resources that you don't want to put at risk. So he, he absolutely, and that journey absolutely embodies the logic of intelligent failure. Yeah, it requires a degree of skepticism. In a sense, then, it's the unscience of failing well. <laughs> That's right. Or it's yeah, skepticism is the right is the right word. It's it harkens back to Edison, who said, "I haven't failed. I found ten thousand ways that won't work." It, it's um, you know, and it, it's I don't believe the experts, right? I don't believe the experts who say it can't be done. The Wright brothers, right? It was there was a scientific paper published two years before Kitty Hawk, where that that proved. But leading scientists proved without a shadow of a doubt in the scientific paper that man-powered space flight was an impossibility. Talk about smart risks resulting in high-quality conversation. How are we doing so far, Amy? Well, that's, that, we'll have to pause to assess. Um, I think we're doing okay. I think you're asking um, questions that, that work for sharing. Am I taking too many okay. risks or not enough? Um, just right. Just right, you would say that to all your interviewers. We're going to take a short break. We're talking with Amy Edmondson, who is the author of the FT Longlisted Best Business Book of the Year, Right Kind of Wrong, a book about risk and failure. Going to remind everyone that this show is sponsored by Liberties, a quarterly journal of culture and politics. All our guests will get an annual subscription for free, including Amy. We're going to show a short video and then we'll be back to talk more failure and success with Harvard Business School's Amy Edmondson. Don't go away, anyone. <laughs> Beyond the news, the noise, there is nuance, insight. Liberties is not just a journal of ideas. It's a meteor of intelligent substance. It's the place to be for engaged citizens. Politics, opinion, substance. Liberties is a triumph for freedom of thought. A quarterly of urgency, of cultural exploration, of intellectual delight, of immaculate prose. It's invaluable. Subscribe now or find Liberties at your favorite bookseller. And you can check out more about Liberties at libertiesjournal.org. Uh, sorry, .com. We are talking with uh, Amy Edmondson, the author of A Right Kind of Wrong, The Science of Failing Well. What about, uh, Amy, The Science of Failing Well? wrong. Uh, one of your colleagues at uh, Harvard Business School, and uh, you don't need to tell me about you, you don't need me to tell you about this story. Francesca Gino um, apparently falsified results in behavioral science. That is, she was a, a professor of, um, of honesty, and she's been accused of dishonesty, a huge, uh, huge scandal at the business school. 
whether or not she was purposely cheating, is that an example of, of failing wrong, of taking too many risks, do you think? Let me take that entirely in the abstract because I, I cannot and will not comment. No, I understand, and I'm not expecting you to, on this specific to address case. the issue itself. But um, certainly fraud, academic and otherwise, is um, not um, an unheard of phenomenon. And it is absolutely wrong kind of wrong. And, and when we step back to say, why does it happen? I think there are many answers and, and, and probably it'll qualify in my terminology as a complex failure because of the, the multiple swirling factors that lead individuals to find themselves in a place where they are cheating or committing fraud. And, and sometimes that's it's self-imposed pressure or perceived societal pressure. You know, sometimes it's, it's deadlines. Sometimes it's a, a literal belief that what they're doing is right and cutting a corner or two is in fact um, just getting them in the right. I mean, there's, I think there's many, many things that contribute to these kinds of, of incidents and and certainly, we can't forget that at least one possibility is the fact that people um, might be set up um, by bad actors um, to look as if they've done something wrong. There's, so complex topic, but if we take this sort of pure idea of people fraudulently doing something, then we're in the realm of, of, of crime and um, there are experts in that realm, not me, but I, I do think it's a beautiful illustration of not the science of failing well. But there is a tremendous attraction to, as you say, cutting corners or perhaps breaking the law. The current pinup in Silicon Valley is, of course, Sam Altman, the OpenAI founder, the man who took a risk on uh, generative AI and won. Last month's uh, pinup was another Sam. Sam Bankman-Fried, of course, now is in jail and disgraced. Um, is there a problem more broadly? I mean, you're at the business school, so you teach a lot of entrepreneurs with the, 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 the ethical guardrails when it comes to taking risks of, of, of young entrepreneurs like Bankman-Fried or Altman. Yes, I think our ethical guardrails, I don't mean ours at the school, I mean ours in the world and in, in maybe in business in particular, have found themselves lowering. Certainly in the, in the political sphere, we have, just, we have collectively somehow lowered our commitment to ethical guardrails, things that people once upon a time would have thought absolutely impermissible. And if you're discovered breaking even one rule, that's the end of your career. That, as everyone knows, is no longer the case. And so maybe we have, it seems to me, we've entered a time of expediency or the ends justify the means that is a far more dominant impression that people can get in today's world being brought up in today's world than was ever possible um, in the past. Do we need particularly sensitive antennae to cultural norms? You you write about taking risks on the, the personal front too, in friends, spouses, hobbies, and career moves. You know, when one thinks of, shall we say, sexual risks in the old days, not saying everyone was Harvey Weinstein, but it was possible for men in particular to take risks when it came to women. These days, it seems much less likely. Do 
does the the science of failing well and the right kind of wrong is it dependent on cultural norms which are always shifting i think not right i i at least um my hope my aspirational state for the science of failing well is that the risks you are about to take are discussable if if you should be able to say out loud this may work because, and it may not work because, and here's how I'm thinking about it. And, and by the way, if you see it differently, now's the time, because I would much rather take smart risks than dumb risks. And if I have a risk in mind, but you can easily see a flaw that I haven't seen, I want to hear about it before, not after I try it. But so the, you know, the hypothetical you bring up about taking, you know, risks in the sexual domain with others who you know may or may not be welcome to those advances um, would not qualify as one that's discussable. Because if it cannot be explicitly shared, then it may not be scientific in, in my terminology. You say that we need more failures uh, in our lives and our organizations with benefit from experiencing more failures, not fewer. You don't need to tell a Sam Bankman-Fried or an Altman or your colleagues or, or myself about this, but it seems as if most people simply aren't willing to take risks. Is your book for people who, I mean, I'm guessing that the vast majority of people who will read this book, the readers of the FT, viewers of, of Keenon, they're going to be people who are comfortable taking risks. How do we convince yeah. everybody else who, well, who are terrified of even the idea of taking yeah. that. I mean, I'll push back that on that a little bit, because given that I'm known for psychological safety, which a lot of people even erroneously believe means everything will be safe and comfortable when actually what it means is fearlessness and candor. But nonetheless, I think there may there's at least a possibility that people who were interested in that work will also be interested in this work. But I do think the reason why people are less willing to take risks, and especially when they're very accomplished or especially as, as we get older, because it starts, to, it starts to seem too risky to get something wrong. And so then it's just easier to not, not take the risks. But what I argue in the book is that deprives you of adventure, joy, occasionally even love, you know, people who are unwilling to sort of in, in at various points in their life um, reach out to or ask out someone that they are very interested in because they think they wouldn't be reciprocating and they don't want to have the embarrassment or the humili humiliation of that won't do it. When in fact, what could go wrong? Sure, you might be embarrassed, but it's a very small failure to be sure. Your book is full of examples, not just from business and tech, but pop culture and history. Perhaps you might give a couple of other examples, uh, anecdotes or uh, sections in the book that you're particularly uh, keen on, so to speak. Well, my, um, I, I guess you could um, technically say that um, shipping is a business, and it is, but it's 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 more of a, a sort of a tragic safety failure, which is the Torrey Cannon, uh, Ca Canyon um, that was, that crashed off the Isle of Scilly um, back in 1972. And it's a classic illustration of a complex failure where four or five factors 
went wrong in at just the same time and led this giant ship to crash overboard and make one of the worst environmental spills in history. Now, that's not a happy story. It's a very it's a very sad story, but what what makes it even sadder was that in the aftermath the push to blame the captain as sort of the single causal factor um, not only, you know, it, it added insult to injury, it ruined the rest of his life. He became a, a broken man who essentially never, you know, never felt he could go out in public uh, again. And it's a complete misread on what happened, which was sort of a combination of a couple of small deviations, some very bad luck on, you know, a lobster boat showing up in the, in the lane, exactly the wrong moment. And, you know, five or six other factors that create what you might think of as the the perfect storm. It's a gripping story, the story of his reaction, the story of the life. I think it's quite gripping, quite emotionally poignant. If anything good came out of it, um, which I think the only good thing that did come out of it was the modern environmental movement because it got so much uh, attention. So, so that's a big, complex, wrong kind of wrong failure, um, ultimately preventable, but... Um, only if you understand how to prevent complex failures. Um, small, a small um, story in the book um, involves the, um, the the blind date of my mother, um, set up by a good friend of hers with a man who ends up being the love of her life and my father, um, and it is the product of um, following intuitively the science of failing well. That's the end. Poli on a political note, Amy, uh, if the book wins the FT award, maybe Joe Biden will pick it up as old Joe is grappling with whether or not he should run again next year. A lot of people don't think he should. Um, he doesn't seem to be a, a risk taking kind of guy. If he read your book, what do you think he would learn about whether or not he should run again for president? Well, I think he would learn that you bring together a group of your most trusted advisors inside and out. You share your thinking aloud about why you believe you should um, run again, and you open it up to what am I missing, right? Give me the scenarios, give me the hypotheses that you can see that I'm missing. And by the way, let's flesh out the alternatives. So that would be an invitation to a high quality conversation in a situation of great uncertainty and very high stakes. And I believe leading a good process, he could navigate through that conversation and come out wiser on the other side. And what do you think his conclusion would be? Run or not run? I think one has to have the very, the very logic of my work is I can't presuppose what, what the answer is. But we'll, I have get, say, we'll have to get Joe on and uh, he can read the book and then yeah. come up with a a conclusion and announce it on the show. Well, Amy, best of luck. You're going to be on the short list, I'm sure. If you're not, it will be a huge failure. But we <laughs> shall see on the 20th of uh, September. Keep well. Congratulations on the book and on being on the long list. Thank you very much.